I'm Dennis Levitt. This is my lovely wife, Tracy. Hi, I'm John Rudnick. We're Barry and Anita Chenault. My name's Edward Devlin. My name is Rosalie Devlin. Hi, we are Brent and Sheila Howell. My name is Matt Weisman. Hi, my name is Hannah Rollins. My name is Chad Peterson. We were able to spend a year at Coastal Chesapeake with the First Impressions team. When we were trying to decide if we were going to go to Chesapeake or not, I mean, we did spend quite a bit of time praying. We would spend time in the car. Uh, we drove over, sat in the parking lot, and we, we prayed there. It was just part of our daily prayer, and we continued to pray through Chesapeake and serving in the first impressions. We prayed a lot about what was going on there and, and hoping to grow and just seeing how things went. We want to reach people, and there are lost and hurting and lonely and broken people everywhere. And so if we can join together and pray for those campuses, we don't know where God might lead us. So to see that campus grow, even just while we were there, there were new families that were coming and people were committing their membership. There were children, the children's area was growing. And I know that that will continue. And just that mix of people that God brought together to, to start it and to kick it off. I'm just so, it was such a privilege to be part of that. And I'm so overwhelmed that we got to be there. And every time that we hear about Coastal Chesapeake and we see our friends, we're excited. We're so excited about what God is doing there. And we know that he's going to continue it. Amen. What an awesome testimony. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We are continuing this sermon series we kicked off last week, looking at the Lord's Prayer together. And while you're turning there, I want to let you know about a couple of things going on at Coastal. First of all, small group season kicked off this last week. I know you guys already know that because, of course, you were all in small group this last week. But just in case you missed it. We are in the middle of small group season, and I want everyone in this room to make sure that you are in a small group for the next two months. If you're looking for a group, go coastal.org slash small groups, green grow booklets at the welcome desk, list all of our groups. Please consider getting in a small group for the next two months. We'd love to have you in that. I want to let you know about a program that we're starting up soon called Change That Sticks. This is a biblical counseling class and curriculum that's going to be taking place at the Yorktown campus every fourth Monday at 7 p.m. It's going to be starting not this Monday, but next Monday, September 26th. You can register by emailing dave at gocoastal.org. And what this curriculum is, is it's training for biblical counseling. So if you're interested in doing counseling, or if you have a struggle in your life and you're trying to understand what does biblical change look like and how does that happen, this is a great class for you to get involved in. And so the cost is $125, but that cost includes a book uh, and the rest of this training. So if you're interested, Dave at gocoastal.org. Last but not least, I want to highlight one of our ministries here at Coastal. So our kids ministry is an incredible blessing to our church, and we are always looking for more volunteers in Coastal Kids. So if you are looking for an area to serve, please consider serving in Coastal Kids. When people come to me and they kind of give me the blank check, like, all right, Pastor Nate, I want to serve. Where do you need me? You know, my answer is always. Kids ministry, Coastal Kids. Listen, if that's you, if you're looking for a place to serve, please consider serving in Coastal Kids. It's an amazing ministry. It's a vital ministry to this church. So you can sign up right on your Connect card that you're interested in serving in Coastal Kids. You can sign up online. You can talk to Amy Sexton, who's our Coastal Kids coordinator. All right, Matthew chapter six. Let's start this morning with a bit of a thought experiment, okay? 
I want you to think back to the way that you have prayed and what you have prayed for in the last week. If God were to look from heaven in this very moment and say, all right, I am saying yes to everything that you have prayed for in the last seven days. I mean, think about it. Think about the prayers you've prayed in the last week. God is now saying yes to everything that you asked for. How different would the world be? How different would the world be if God looked down and said yes to everything that you asked for? Would there be widespread revival in our church, in our community, in our nation, in our world? Would there be peace and harmony on earth from your life? Would there be heartfelt obedience to all of God's commands? Or would you find your car keys? Uh, would your aunt's surgery have gone well? And would the cheeseburger be blessed to the nourishment of your body? <laughs> and now, even as I say that, let me give my caveat. Yes, we can pray about whatever we want. Yes, there is nothing too small for us to bring before the throne of grace. We're invited to cast all of our cares on God. Yes, caveat over. Here's the deal. Our prayers are too small, y'all. Our prayers are too small. We are not praying the kinds of God-centered, kingdom-minded prayers that we ought to as followers of Jesus. And in this section of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us that the purpose of prayer is not to get what we want. The purpose of prayer is to bring our hearts and our lives into alignment with God's priorities. To say, God, this life is not about me. It's about your kingdom. It's not about my will, Lord. It's about your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. John Hanna wrote, the end of prayer is not so much tangible answers as a deepening life of dependency. The call to prayer is a call to love, submission, and obedience. The avenue of sweet, intimate, and intense fellowship of the soul with the infinite creator. Church, I believe that in this section of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus wants to move us toward praying big prayers, prayers that are focused on the advancement of God's everlasting kingdom, prayers that are focused on the accomplishment of God's perfect will on earth as it is in heaven. So let me give you the main point of my sermon. Our prayers should be focused on the advancement of God's kingdom and the accomplishment of God's will on earth as it is in heaven. So you guys know the drill. We did this last week. We're going to do it again. We are going to say the Lord's Prayer together to begin this sermon. And listen, I get it. The first service, I made them start again because there wasn't enough participation. So I want to hear you guys, okay? Loud and proud. You know it. If you don't know it, it's going to be up there. So you got no excuse, all right? So let's say this together as a church family. You ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege that we have to come and open your word and to learn from it, Lord. I thank you that you have given us this model for prayer to teach us how to pray. And Father, I pray that through your word this morning, you would inspire us, challenge us, motivate us to be more kingdom-minded, to have an eternal perspective. Lord, to be focused on the accomplishment of your will, not our will. 
Lord, change our hearts, change our lives, teach us how to pray. God, we love you. And I ask that as we study your word this morning, your spirit would come, would open up our hearts and minds to receive what you would have to teach us today. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. The first way that Jesus teaches us how to pray in this section of the prayer is your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Now, what kingdom is he talking about? Well, probably the main theme of Jesus's preaching ministry in the gospels is what's referred to as the kingdom or of God or synonymous to it, the kingdom of heaven. But what is the kingdom of God? I think this is one of those phrases in Christianity and in the Christian world that we use all the time, but we never stop to define. Uh, we use the word kingdom all the time. You know, this is for spreading the kingdom. This is kingdom work, being kingdom minded and so on and so forth. But we never take a step back and ask, what exactly is the kingdom of God? I know the first time I did that, the first time I thought, I say that word all the time, but what is the kingdom of God? It kind of stopped me in my tracks a little bit. So let's talk about it. What is the kingdom of God? There is a sense in which the kingdom of God refers generally to the sovereignty of God, right? God is the creator. God owns everything. God is sovereign over everything. And therefore, in that sense, God is the king. But I think that the phrase kingdom of God in the New Testament is often much more specific than that. Because think about it. We're said to enter into the kingdom. We're said to be transferred into the kingdom. We're said to value the kingdom. The kingdom is something that spreads after starting small. So I don't think it's referring merely to the fact that God is sovereign and God is king. I think it's more specific than that. And let me summarize what I think the Bible means when it says the kingdom of God. I believe this is a reference to God's saving reign. There's something redemptive about the kingdom of God. This is God's saving reign. It is active in history through the king, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And now there's something really important to understand about this kingdom. We need to have a five minute theology lesson. Okay. So please don't fall asleep. Uh, stay with me here. This is important. Theologians often talk about the kingdom of God and say what they call the now and the not yet of the kingdom, the now and the not yet. This means that the kingdom is both a present reality and it is a future reality. You confused yet? Good. Let's keep going. So it's a present reality in the sense that the king has come. Jesus has entered into history. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the father. And so right now at this very moment, Jesus is king. Jesus is reigning over the kingdom of God. And yet this world is not yet what it was intended to be. There is still sin. There is still death. There is still war. There is still brokenness in this world. So the kingdom in that sense has not yet been finally consummated. So this is the language we can use. The kingdom has been inaugurated with the entrance of the king into the world, but the kingdom has not yet been consummated. Let me show you both of these ideas from scripture. Matthew 12, 28 shows us that the kingdom is now. He says, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus is saying the very fact that I am casting out demons, that I am overthrowing Satan's kingdom shows you that the kingdom of God has come, that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is saying the kingdom is now because I'm here. But the kingdom is also not yet. Look at Luke 28, 18 with reference to the Lord's Supper. Jesus says, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine 
When's he going to drink of the fruit of the vine? Until the kingdom of God comes. This is showing us that there is a sense in which the kingdom of God is a future reality that we wait for, that we look forward to. And it might be helpful to show you that there's one verse that gives us both sides of this in one verse. Revelation chapter five, we're taken into a worship service in heaven that is taking place in this current age. And this is what the saints are singing in Revelation 5.10. And you have made them a kingdom, it's past tense, and priests to our God, and they shall reign, future tense, and where are they going to reign? On the earth. So there's a sense in which we are already a kingdom, and yet there is a future earthly reign to the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is both now and it is not yet. It has been inaugurated. It has yet to be consummated. And with this framework in mind, I want us to now ask the question, so what? Right? How does this idea of a kingdom of God intersect with my life today? Let me give you four ways. First, let's talk about entering the kingdom. Entering the kingdom. That kingdom, this saving reign of God, this now and not yet, all of that sounds great, Pastor Nate, but, but how do I become a part of that? How do I become a citizen of this kingdom? Let me give you the bad news first, okay? The bad news is that you can't. Not on your own anyway. Uh, because of our sin, we are blind. We are spiritually dead. We can't enter into the kingdom on our own strength, on our own power. We need God to intervene to bring us into his kingdom. This is what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter three. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Let's pause there for a minute. Don't you love the patience of Jesus? Because <laughs> I would have just walked away at that point or just had a massive face palm. Like, dude, are you serious? Like, <laughs> anyway, uh, so then he repeats himself. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying because of our sin, because we're spiritually blind and lost, unless the Holy Spirit regenerates us, causes us to be born again, you can't enter the kingdom, not just can't enter it. You can't even see it, he says. You can't see the kingdom of God. It is when God intervenes in our life through the Holy Spirit that we are now enabled to enter into the kingdom. Colossians 1 puts it this way. It says that he, that is God, transferred us from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. How does he do that? Through the gospel. Through the gospel. The Holy Spirit works through the gospel to bring us into the kingdom. This is the first thing Jesus said in, in the gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter one. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so what should we do because the kingdom of God is at hand? Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's how we enter the kingdom, through the gospel. The Holy Spirit opens up our eyes so that we see the kingdom for what it is and we repent and we believe in the gospel. I mean, think about it this way. What is the first thing that a newborn baby does when they enter into the world? What is their first act? They cry. When a newborn Christian is born again, what is their first act? They cry out to God in faith. 
They repent and they believe in the gospel. That is how we enter into the kingdom through the gospel. But next, let's talk about valuing the kingdom. As we have entered into the kingdom, Jesus teaches us what it means to value the kingdom. Let's look together at a parable he tells in Matthew 13. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, first of all, we're hoping this happens over on Hickory Fork. Uh, We find some hidden treasure out there. It can help us with this fundraiser. But anyway, um, look at this parable. It shows us the value of the kingdom, that this man finds this treasure and he finds this treasure so valuable that he sells everything he has so that he can get that treasure. And how does he do it? Does it say, and begrudgingly with sorrow in his heart, he was very distressed about it, but eventually he gave in and decided to sell all that he has and buy the field. No, it says in his joy, he sells everything he has and he goes and he buys that field. There is a sense in which, yes, we make sacrifices for the kingdom, but when we understand how glorious and how valuable the kingdom is, it's never really a sacrifice. It's our joy. It's our joy that we get to sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom. There's a phrase, if you've been around Coastal for any length of time, you've heard Pastor Sean say many times, it's a phrase, time, talent, and treasure. We believe that we're called to sacrifice our time, talent, and treasure for the sake of the kingdom. Our time, that is using the time that God has given us to serve God and serve others. Our talent, the unique gifts and abilities that God has given us, using them to serve the church. And our treasure, yes, even our money. Giving for the sake of the kingdom that it would be spread. Let me ask us, church, how are we living sacrificially and even better than that, joyfully for the sake of the kingdom? So next, let's talk about spreading the kingdom. In this age, in the now of the kingdom, the influence of God's saving reign is something that spreads progressively. It's something that happens gradually. Look at another parable in Matthew 13 with me. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, But when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He says the kingdom, it's like a mustard seed. It's really small, kind of like 12 guys in Jerusalem. And then it becomes this large tree, kind of like, I don't know, a few billion people all across this planet. The kingdom starts small and it grows gradually throughout history. Church, this is the great commission that because Jesus is king, because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, we as his disciples are called to go and to take the good news of God's saving reign to all of the nations. In the Old Testament, it was come and see what God has done for Israel. But in the New Testament, it is go and tell the nations what God has done for them in Christ. And this kingdom, as it spreads, I love this, it transcends national boundaries. Revelation shows us that every tribe, language, and nation will be around the throne of God worshiping him. That he will save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And a great way to see that is to go on a mission trip. It will do such work in your heart to go to another part of the world and to worship with people who, who, don't, uh, who don't speak the same language as we do. 
such a powerful thing. And, you know, I, this was illustrated for me a couple of years ago. I went on a mission trip to Zimbabwe years ago. And we were on the way home from that trip. And my luggage was getting checked in an airport in Africa. Uh, and this lady who worked in the airport was going through my bag and she found my Bible. And she said, is this your Bible? And in the back of my head, I went, uh-oh. I mean, how is this going to go? It's about to be awkward or something. I don't know. So I said, well, yes, it is. And so we got into a conversation. I, I figured out that she was a Christian. And so we, we had maybe just a 30 to 60 second brief, friendly conversation and close up my bag. I'm getting ready to walk away. And this lady says, all right, well, I'll see you around the throne one day. I will never forget that. I had spent one minute of my life with this lady. And yet we're going to spend eternity together. That's amazing. That's what the kingdom does because what the kingdom does is some lady who I've met for one minute across the globe, I have a deeper connection to than blood because we're in the kingdom. That's incredible. And one day when we're all around that throne, you know what we're going to be doing? We're going to be celebrating the victory of the kingdom. We're going to be celebrating the victory of the kingdom. This is the not yet part. This is what we are going to celebrate one day. This is what we look forward to. The day when the kingdom of God on earth is as it already is in heaven. Look with me at Revelation chapter 11, where we get just a glimpse of this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God almighty, who is and who was for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. We will celebrate that day when all of the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of Christ, that Jesus will come and he will reign on this earth forever and ever and ever. That's the hope that we look forward to, church, the victory of the kingdom. That is our hope. But until that day, how do we pray? How do we pray until that day? We pray for the advancement of the kingdom. We pray for the advancement of the kingdom. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are requesting that Christ's rule and reign would be manifested in this world until the day he returns to establish his kingdom on earth. When we pray your kingdom come, we are praying that the influence of God's kingdom would spread throughout all the nations. In other words, church, this is a deeply evangelistic prayer to pray your kingdom come. We are praying that God's saving reign would move forward. We pray that the lost would enter into this kingdom and that they would become citizens along with us. We pray that the influence of gospel preaching local churches would expand and spread. We pray that we would see revival in our church, in our community, in our nation, in our world. We pray for the nations that don't have access to the gospel, that God would raise up and would send missionaries there to preach the gospel and to plant gospel preaching local churches. We pray for our own lives. We pray for open doors every single day. Every day we should be asking God to give us an open door to share Christ with someone, to be an ambassador for Christ wherever we are. Let me ask us this morning, are we praying kingdom-minded prayers? Are we praying kingdom-minded prayers like that? Let me challenge you. Let me challenge me. Let's commit to that. Let's commit to praying for the advancement of God's kingdom together.
But next, Jesus teaches us to pray, your will be done. Your will be done. There is nothing that is quite so puzzling in many of our lives than this concept of the will of God. We say things, and when things happen in our lives, we wonder, was this God's will? Young people will often ask the question, and being in student ministry before, one question that I got more than anything else is like, how can I find out God's will for my life? I need to find out what God's will for my life is. This is a really important subject that we need to understand. And so let's talk about this idea of the will of God a little bit. I think that scripture gives us at least two different dimensions to think about the will of God, namely God's purposes and God's commands. So let's look at each of these. First, let's talk about God's purposes. Sometimes when the scripture talks about the will of God, it is talking about God's purposes or God's plans for history and for eternity. Theologians often call this the secret will of God because we don't know it. We don't often know what God's plan is going to be in our lives. It can be called the will of decree because this is what God has decreed to take place in history. Let me give you a few scriptures that teach this idea. The first, Isaiah 46.10, it says that God is declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. I mean, think about it. God is saying, I will accomplish my purposes. It's going to happen. He says that he declares the end from the beginning. It made me think about Michael Scott, right? I didn't say it. I declared it. All right, maybe like three of you got that. That's okay. Um, thank you, Jessica. Uh, I didn't say it. I declared. God declared the end from the beginning. He knows what's going to happen. He has plans and purposes for history. Similarly, Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who does what? Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Not some things, not most things, all things. God works all all things according to the counsel of his will. God's purposes will be accomplished and God works all things according to his will. So when we're speaking of God's purposes, God's will is always done perfectly and completely. God's purposes will be accomplished. They cannot be stopped. God works all things in this sense according to his will. But that's not the only dimension of the will of God in scripture. There are God's purposes, but there are also God's commands. This is what we often call God's revealed will or his will of command. This refers to what God's desires are for humanity and his commands for our lives. So when God commands us to do something in scripture, we can say it is God's will that you would do this. Let me give you an example. The Bible says you shall not lie. Has anyone in this room ever told a lie? The answer is no. Refer back to the first part because you just told a lie. So obviously it is God's will that you not lie. So when you lie, you have violated God's will. You are not living in accordance with God's will. So if God's will is always done perfectly in the sense of his purposes, God's will is obviously not always done when we're speaking about his commands because his commands are violated by all of us each and every day. That's the distinction there. This is the dimension that I think scripture tends to focus on because it's what you and I need to live our lives faithfully. We don't need to know all of the details of God's plans for our life in order to be faithful to him. We need to know what the commands are. 
And so let me give you, there's a lot we could say here. Let me give you three things here that are a part of God's will of command for us. Three passages of scripture where we're explicitly told, like, this is God's will for your life. Anybody ever asked that question? I just want to know what God's will for my life is. I'm about to tell you, okay? I'm about to tell you, this is what God's will for your life is. And not because of me, because the Bible says so, okay? The first part of God's will for your life is that you would believe the gospel. That you would believe the gospel. John 6, 40, this is what Jesus says. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is God's will of command that all would believe the gospel. It says in Acts 17 that God commands all people everywhere to repent. And it is his will that whoever turns to Christ, whoever believes in Christ would have eternal life, would be saved. If you're asking the question, what is God's will for my life? Let me tell you the very first part of it is that you would believe the gospel, that you would turn to Christ. Let me very briefly summarize the gospel for you. The gospel is a word that means good news. It is the good news that there is a holy and a righteous God who created us in his image, but we have sinned against God and we deserve his punishment for that sin. But God loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world. He lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death and he rose from the dead three days later so that if we would turn from our sin and we would believe in him, as John 6, 40 says, we will have eternal life and we will be raised up on the last day. That's the gospel. The starting point of living in God's will for your life is believing the gospel, having a relationship with Christ. But next, it's holiness. It's God's will that his children would walk in holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. This is the will of God, he says, your sanctification. That's just a big word that means growth and holiness. It means becoming more like Jesus. It means putting off sin in our life and putting on the virtues that Christ calls us to, the fruit of the spirit. It's his will that we would walk in holiness. And he gives us a specific application of that, namely sexual sin. It is his will that we would walk in purity in our lives. And here's why it's important to emphasize holiness as a part of the will of God. I think that when we say, I want to know what God's will for my life is, we typically have in mind the decisions of life, particular situations. When I say, I want to know what God's will for my life is, nine times out of 10, I mean, I want to know who to marry, which house to buy, which college to go to, which car to buy, which church to go to, whatever. And all those decisions are important. Don't get me wrong. And we need wisdom for all of those decisions. But I am convinced that God's higher priority is who you are than what you choose to do in the particulars of life. God's highest priority is your Christ-like character, that you would become more like Jesus in every aspect of your life. So it is God's will that we would walk in holiness. But finally, with regard to our attitude or our spirit, it is God's will that we would live with joyful dependence on him. It is God's will that we would live in joyful dependence upon him. One more will of God passage for you, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice always, 
in any and in every circumstance, we can have joy because of who God is and because of what he has done for us. Pray sometimes. Pray whenever it's convenient. Maybe carve out five minutes in the morning, he says, right? Oh, I'm sorry. Pray without ceasing. Some translations say pray constantly. The idea here is not that there's never one waking moment where you're not praying. The idea here is that prayer is such a regular rhythm in your life that it becomes as natural to you as breathing. That in every situation, in every circumstance, your gut reaction is to say, I need to bring this to the Lord. I need to pray about this. I need to seek God's will about this, that that would become a natural reaction and overflow of your very life. Give thanks in all circumstances. I love that. It doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. It's not, Lord, thank you for this flat tire. Lord, thank you for this two-year-old temper tantrum. It's just what I wanted. It's give thanks in all circumstances. No matter what our circumstances are, we always have something to be grateful for because of who God is and because of what he's done, we can have a heart posture of gratitude toward him. This is God's will for us. And what a kind God we serve. I mean, think about it. It is God's will that you would have joy. (laughs) That's pretty good. It's God's will that you would have joy, that you would talk to him. Do you ever wonder if God wants to talk to you? It's God's will that you would talk to him all the time. Even the people that I love more than anyone else in this world, I'm like, all right, I love you but I need some space. Anybody else? Is that just me? It's God's will that you would pray without ceasing. That's amazing. This is how kind our God is. It is his will for us that we would have joy in relationship with him. So when we pray your will be done, what are we praying for? We are praying for the accomplishment of God's will. The accomplishment of God's will. So first of all, we pray for the accomplishment of God's purposes over and against our own. Now, to be clear, I don't think, because I said, I believe God's purposes are always done. God declares the end from the beginning. God says, I will accomplish my purposes. I don't think we necessarily need to ask that God's purposes will be done any more than we need to pray that that fire would be hot. Uh, Any more than we need to pray that that water will be wet. Any more than we need to pray for the Washington commanders to win today. Uh, It's stuff that is just not going to happen. Uh, sorry, my team lost last week. I don't have a leg to stand on, but, but um, we don't need to pray asking that God's purposes will be done because we're afraid they won't be. The reason we pray for God's purposes to be done because as self-centered sinners, we have a tendency to pray my will be done instead of thy will be done. We have a tendency to bring our agenda to God and ask him to sign off on it in our prayers. We need to learn how to pray your will be done, your purposes be done because we need to learn how to submissively lay our desires and dreams at God's feet. We need to bring it all to God and say, Lord, this life is not mine. This world is not mine. My story is not mine. All of it is yours and I'm giving it to you and asking you to do what you please with it for your glory because your plans for me are way better than my plans for me. We ask that God's purposes would be done But we also pray for the accomplishment of God's commands. When we pray your will be done in the sense of God's will of command, we are submitting our lifestyle, our thinking, our attitudes, and our behavior to the Lord. And we're saying, Lord, I'm giving this all to you and I'm going to commit to following your will for my life. I want to walk in holiness, Lord. 
Lord, I want to live with joyful dependence on you. That's what it means to pray your will be done in that sense. We ask that God would be joyfully obeyed by us, by our family, by our church, and eventually in all the world. So when God's kingdom comes and when God's will is done, what's it going to look like? It's going to look like heaven, isn't it? It's going to look a lot like heaven. That's why Jesus says on earth as it is in heaven. John MacArthur wrote, the way God's will is done in heaven is the way believers are to pray for God's will to be done on earth. Unwaveringly, completely, sincerely, willingly, fervently, readily, swiftly, and constantly. Our prayer should be that every person and thing on earth be brought into conformity with God's perfect will. This is what we pray for, that God's kingdom would come and that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, there is no sin. In heaven, there is no disobedience. In heaven, there is no you know, grumbling as we're doing something. It's all perfect joy, perfect obedience. That should be what we long for. And our hope is that one day earth would be as heaven. It's not our hope to escape earth and one day get to heaven. It's our ultimate hope is that one day heaven and earth will become one. When Jesus returns and he creates a new heaven and a new earth, when we pray on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying with an eternal perspective. We are praying with a longing for that day when Jesus will come and Jesus will make all things new. So let me leave you with two takeaways this morning. First takeaway is this. Pray big prayers. Pray big prayers. We serve a big God. We serve an infinite, omnipotent, sovereign God who is able to do infinitely more than we could ever ask or think. And so let's not patronize him by praying small. Let's pray God-centered, kingdom-focused prayers with the desire to see this earth become more like heaven every single day as the gospel goes forward. Let's pray with an eager longing for King Jesus to return and establish his kingdom on earth. Let's pray that God's will would be delightfully obeyed in our lives, in our families, in our churches. We need to pray big prayers. You know, John Piper used the illustration in one of his books about how prayer is intended by God to be like a wartime walkie-talkie that we use to radio heaven for reinforcements. The problem is, and the reason why prayer often malfunctions is because we use it more like a domestic intercom to call the butler for room service. Are we calling heaven for reinforcements as his kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven? Or are we just asking God to give us what we want? Like spoiled children. We need to be kingdom minded in our prayers. We need to pray big prayers. Next takeaway. Church, are we praying thy will be done or are we praying my will be done? We often go to God in prayer only focused on what we can get from God and not considering what God wants to do in us and through us. Prayer does not change God. God does not change, but prayer changes me. I can't tell you how many times I have started out a prayer all spun up about something, angry, anxious, whatever it is, and by the end of the prayer, I'm repenting for being so angry or spun up about what started my prayer. Anybody else ever done that? 
It's like through the process of the prayer itself, God shapes my heart and reminds me who he is and who I am and how silly it was that I get so spun up over something like that. God uses prayer to change us and to bend our selfish, stubborn wills into submission to his perfect will. That's what it means to pray, your will be done. And so I'm gonna invite the prayer team to come now. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back now. And I'd like to leave you with one final thought this morning. I, I love this phrase, your will be done. I've been meditating on it a lot. And here's the, the insight that really ministered to me the most as I reflect on that phrase, your will be done. Church, when Jesus asks us to pray, your will be done, he's not asking us to do something that he hasn't already done himself. Because Jesus teaches us to pray, your will be done in Matthew chapter six. But do you realize this is not the last time that Jesus prays your will be done in the gospel of Matthew? Matthew chapter 26 Read with me in verse 39. On the night before his death, Jesus was praying in Gethsemane and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Do we have any idea of the magnitude of that moment, of what was happening? In that moment, Jesus knew what was in the cup. He knew what he was about to face. He knew that in the next day, he would be bearing our sin on the cross, that he would be bearing the wrath of God for our sin in our place on that cross. And every ounce of his holy and perfect being was revulsing at the idea of bearing our sin. I mean, think about it. Jesus is sweating drops of blood, Luke tells us. He's falling on his face saying, Lord, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, please. Nevertheless, not as I will, as you will. I believe when Jesus said, your will be done, it is the greatest act of faith in human history. Because if Jesus did not pray, your will be done in that garden, you and I are lost. Jesus knew what was coming the next day. Even his friends abandoned him. His best friend was sleeping. And he says, Father, your will be done. And guess what, church? God's will was done. Isaiah 53 said, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God's will was done on that cross. And you and I will spend an eternity celebrating that fact. So here's the deal. Why does that make a difference for you and I today? Sometimes your will be done can be the most dangerous prayer we can pray. It certainly was for Jesus because God's will for Jesus's life was a cross. And many times, church, that's the same thing for you and me. In this world, we will face tribulation. We will suffer in this world. And yet, as we do so, 
we know that our heavenly father loves us, that he cares for us, that he is ruling and reigning over all things for our good and for his glory. We know that he will accomplish his purposes. And so because Jesus can pray, your will be done in the garden, you and I can pray your will be done no matter what temptations we face, no matter what trials we face, because we know that when he returns, this earth will one day be his heaven. And the sufferings of this life are not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. So what does all that mean for us? My prayer for Coastal Gloucester is that we would be a people marked by submission to God's perfect will and zeal for God's everlasting kingdom until the day that Jesus returns to make all things new. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we are amazed with Jesus. We stand amazed that in the face of the worst suffering imaginable, he prayed your will be done. So Father, now in the much lesser sufferings that we might face in our lives, we also come to you and say, Lord, your will be done. No matter where we are, Lord, if we're in the valley or we're on top of the mountain, Father, your will be done. Our lives are yours, Lord. We pray and surrender to you. Father, let your will be done in our lives. And Father, let your kingdom come in and through us. Use us to be ambassadors for your kingdom. Use us everywhere we go. God, we love you and we thank you for who you are and for all that you've done for us in Christ. And I pray that as we go, you would give us the strength that we need to glorify you until the day that this earth is made as heaven. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and close with singing this morning.